0: Uh, we're going to talk about our bodies this morning. Uh, Maybe you noticed as you came in, there was this big box of donuts increasing to your body, okay, this morning. Who could resist a huge, beautiful donut? I know I had, if I eat right before I preach, I'm in trouble. So, I resisted the whole time because I'm a pillar of dietary virtue. But, it's very difficult to keep walking past that open box of donuts. I can almost hear it calling to me, okay? Uh, we're going to talk about our bodies. Most of what happens in our culture today uh, tends to be very focused on the appearance of our bodies, right? That's everywhere. And we encounter it at all, all sorts of places all the time. Um, I ran across an interesting, well, I thought it was interesting anyway, but. Uh, fitness centers uh, just been exploding in use and revenue. Every well, COVID kind of you know slammed the door on that, but ever since COVID continues to ramp up, there's a long increase. There's no wonder why they're everywhere. You can't drive a mile around here without seeing a fitness center because they are in use and they're making money. Now it has been stereotypically thought that the busiest time for sign up and use in a fitness center is what? What month? Tell me, January? Right? Right now. Not true. You're wrong. You didn't realize this. But here's the, here's the deal. January is not the busiest time for use or, or for sign up. March and April are. Can you guess why? Summer body. I heard somebody say summer bodies. Now, I don't know, that, you know, I don't know if anybody's actually surveyed people on that, that maybe that's just more or less the guess right now as to what's going on. But that's Probably a fairly accurate guess We want to get our bodies ready for whatever we're doing in the summer. When we talk about bodies in our culture, it is about appearance. do we look good enough for others or whatever? But this morning, what we're talking about when it comes to bodies isn't about appearance. it's about what we do with our bodies is what is happening in First Corinthians chapter six, second half of chapter six and. Paul addresses the bodies and sexual immorality. Uh, and we're going to go there into the text this morning to discover what it is that is important, not just for the Corinthians, but for us as well. So most of the passages I'll have on the screen this morning, but not all of them. So if you have a Bible in your phone, your iPad, or if you actually have a paper one, then it would be a good idea to open up to 1 Corinthians chapter. 6. Now, uh, Paul has a lot to say about our bodies, and is specifically how they are being used by some people in the Corinthian church towards the ends of sexual immorality. So last week, we spent some time considering what Jesus has done for us. If you were here last week, if you watched online, you have, maybe have some recollection of that, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Second part of verse 11, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Such a powerful verse that is right there in the middle of the chapter. That's what Jesus came to do, and the rest of the chapter moves us in this direction. The end of chapter 6 says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify, your God, uh, glorify God in or with your body, verses 19 and 20. So what he's saying in chapter 6 is basically this. Remember what Christ did on your behalf, believers. Don't forget that. Live in that, the free gift of salvation and what it does in your life. Remember, you don't belong, you are not, you are no longer governed or controlled by your past, whatever it is, okay? Okay? We're moving on from there. But remember why Christ did that and to what ends. What is it that Christ is after in your life, in your body? He gave his life for you so that your life would be his. We've got a whole new Lord, a whole new master. So when the text says you, it's important to keep this in mind. Paul means all of your life, okay? Your mind, your heart, your body, and especially your body is important, well, not just for the Corinthians, but for us today to consider what it is that we do with our bodies. Now, for the Corinthians, their way of understanding the physical, the material, different than most of us today, back in the first century, the soul, the psyche, the, uh, the immaterial was what mattered most. So what it is that you were doing with your body mattered far less, if at all, philosophically, religiously, so forth. So uh, you could engage in anything, even in those things that we would refer to as sexually immoral, and doesn't matter because the material, the physical, doesn't matter. So uh, sexual relationships outside of marriage, casual interactions, uh, maybe religious Uh, related, maybe not. Uh, It was how society worked. So what Paul interjects here, what he's reminding believers is radical stuff for the Corinthians and to some degree for us today. So the Jesus way of understanding the body uh, is really summarized here in verse 13, and I'm emphasizing the last part of the verse here. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So we're going to unpack that for a while here this morning, trying to understand what it is that Paul's getting at. There's a lot going on here in chapter 6, especially in the second half of chapter 6. So the Jesus way of understanding the body, number one, the body is meant for the Lord. All of it in every way, the way you think, your mind, your emotions, your heart, and especially and including what he's emphasizing here, the physical, the body. This ensures most of all that discipleship matters, okay? Let that sink in. What we do with our bodies, how and why, is integrated with the act of following Jesus. Because think about it this way, if the body doesn't matter, then discipleship doesn't matter, right? But it all matters. So being a believer, being a follower, follower of Jesus Christ is never uh, related or uh, uh, relegated to just one part of our existence or our life. It's not just intellectual, it is everything. So, Paul brings up sexual immorality and uses prostitution specifically as his main example. So, chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. Do you not know? that your bodies are members of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. You can only be one flesh with one person, Paul is saying. What God intended, what God Designed, he's linking his argument all the way way, all the way back to the book of Genesis. So it's either an immoral relationship, like having sex with a prostitute, or giving your body to Christ. But there's more. See verse 18 here. Uh, He says this: "Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins." against his own body. Now, that's a curious statement, right? Uh, sexually immoral, sins against his own body. Now, you don't have to think very long to come up with all sorts of sins that you could commit that affect your body, right? So what in the world is he saying? So all sorts, I did a lot of reading on this, this a lot of study this past week. Everybody's got a different take on what it is that Paul is saying here. There's plenty of sins that affect the body directly, so there's got to be more depth to what he's saying. So here's where I think Paul is taking us with that statement, sinning against his own body. This is sexual immorality, being uh, united to a prostitute, or you can extend that to physically being united to anybody outside of a marriage relationship, okay? Uh, I think this is where he's going. Sexual sin against the body uh, is a unique body joining and when it's sin, sexually uh, defiling act. Sex outside its purpose puts the body under the mastery of someone or someone else, okay? So sin is sin, we teach that, we know that in any way Going against God, missing the mark, the different ways, the different words uh, they are translated sin—all uh, of that is an offense to God. Making life work your own way—it's sin. Sin is sin, but there, Paul is saying there's something uniquely different and defiling about sexual sin. Uh, as I just said, it puts the person engaging in sexual immorality under the mastery of something because it is so intimate. And so personal that what God created to be uh, ripped apart from that purpose and then extended to someone else, whether it's casual or whether it's paid for or whatever, to engage in that kind of sexual immorality affects the person in a whole nother depth of interpersonal relationship and a whole nother depth of intimacy. That's why this is so important that believers for all time understand what it is that's going on because it's so powerful. God created it that way. Verse 16, he again, he links us back to Genesis. The two became one flesh. So the power of sexual union was always God's idea in the first place. It it is meant uh, and exists today to create a union that God designs and God blesses for the flourishing of everyone. Genesis 2 is quoted by Paul to ground his teaching into never-changing principles that are throughout Scripture and that should resonate for us today. So when you go around and using and taking what God has created, to be expressed in only one way for his purposes, for his design, for the betterment of everyone. When you take that and extend it and use it in ways that are not part of how God has designed it, every part of it, you are actually not doing something casual, but you're actually engaging and joining in with sin. Now, you don't have to watch a whole lot of TV or uh, especially HBO or watch any movies right now without being without encountering sexual immorality in a super, super casual way, right? Uh, it's as if you can engage in sex and laugh about it and go on and joke, you know, with other people and it doesn't mean anything. Uh, and that kind of message has sunk in, well, basically to, well, with all of us. If you're not on your guard against it, we can, be, we can all begin, as believers, we can begin to think that it's just a casual relationship. And Paul is screaming at us through the text, don't go there. Don't pull, again, so much of this, 1 Corinthians, don't mindlessly pull in what's going on in the culture around you and accept it and go with it, run with it, think that it's okay. It is not okay. It goes against everything that God has created. That's the body for the Lord. Now, that's just a really fast scratching of the surface. Again, I want to remind you, any questions, I've already had a couple really good questions, any questions that come up from uh, whatever Danny and I are preaching on this, through this series, jot them down, write them down. Next weekend is an opportunity for us to go deeper uh, as was uh, announced earlier. Q&A, we can get out the Word of God together and talk about some of those questions in a deeper way that hopefully will be far more sufficient than what we're getting in today. But that's the body for the Lord. What about the other way around. What he's already said to the Corinthians and to us is radical. It is drawing a line between what society says is fine, whatever, go and do it, and what scripture says. That's one respect. But he also said the Lord is for the body. It's even more foreign and even more radical to consider this aspect of what God is doing in believers for believers. So, let me try to unpack this real quick, okay? The Lord loves you. The Lord loves all of you, okay? Maybe we don't always consider that. Maybe as you came to Christ, it was more of an emotional response or more more of a limited intellectual kind of thing, whatever. But Paul is also saying, Christ loves all of you, including your body. So in no respect should we kind of entertain the thought that our body is less than in any respect, however you came to Christ. Maybe the sin that you engaged in. Maybe those things that happened to you because of someone else. No matter what it is, you don't discount the value The significance of your body in Christ's eyes. The Lord is for the body. He loves you so much, in fact, that your body is joined and becoming united in one spirit. He says in verse 17, united in one spirit with Christ. Okay, that's at least one aspect of the Lord for the body. But he goes on. The Holy Spirit sets up his residence in you. Verse 19, your body becomes a temple for God's presence to be found in. Now, I think this is particularly important no matter who the Corinthians were or what their background was. You had some Jewish believers who understood and, and uh, maybe were familiar, maybe even saw the old temple, but you had those who were non-Jewish even from pagan backgrounds, who were also um, aware of temple worship of pagan deities. So I would guess that most people, at least most adults, maybe all the adults in the Corinthian church had some idea of what a temple was. And it would have been vast, right? Huge, impressive, columns of marble, uh, massive idols. It was a big deal to be in or anywhere near a temple in ancient times. Now just think of our impression. One of the things that, uh, you know, it's too bad because it's so expensive, building large cathedrals. (laughs) But what I appreciate about a cathedral is its beauty and its immenseness because of the effect it has or can have on the worshiper, okay? I still remember uh, 1988, college student, I went to Europe for the first time as a choir tour, and we went to Copenhagen in Germany. And we walked into the cathedral in Copenhagen. 700-whatever-year-old massive uh, architectural wonder, right? The Allies didn't bomb it into oblivion, World War II, so it's still there, it still stands. I wa- We walk in the door, and it's so huge, you just get lost. In, in the, the arches, right? And we even sang a song. The bishop, whoever it was, is in, uh, on duty, uh, let the choir sing a song. And you get used to, or you, you, you'd expect the echo effect, right? In this vast uh, stone structure. And it's so huge, it doesn't really even echo back. Your voices just go. <laughs> and they get lost somewhere in this massive space. I remember that. Anyway, the impression of a temple-like structure is huge, and it's awe-inspiring. Now, God isn't impressed with buildings. I really don't think so. Now, the design of the tabernacle and the temple, to a degree, is impressive to us, but that is all there for a reason uh, to connect us to a God who is present. So think about this. Your body, no matter how you look at it or how you feel about it, no no matter what you think about its relative uh, attractiveness or even its purity level, God looks at you and says, you're my temple. Isn't that an awesome thought? And I, we no longer need a temple in Jerusalem. We're not building another one, God says through the New Testament. The church and you... As individual believers, you're my temple, and I put my presence in you. You have the living God in you, believer. You're His temple. That is an awesome thing. Don't lose track of that. So Paul is reminding us of that. Uh, also, verse 14: Just as God the Father raised Jesus' body from the dead, our bodies will also be raised. Now, I'm going to. I'm not going to spend a lot of time with that. Chapter 15 of this book takes us deep into that, the significance of that. If, you, if you're Paul, if you're, if you're Paul, you're, you're teaching, you're speaking to so many people who think the body is insignificant, that material things that matter doesn't matter, okay? But as believers, it does matter, and to prove that point, Paul is saying, God raised Jesus, his body, he was bodily raised from the dead, and someday as believers, you will be as well if you are dead, when Jesus returns, your body gets to come back glorified. Even Paul says to the Romans that uh, uh, chapter 8, the the groaning turns into glory. Basically, if you go through his reasoning, the groaning because of sin and all it has done to destroy us and to bring about death, all that's going to be undone. And there is a greater glory that's waiting us that our bodies get to be a part of no matter what we've done to them or no matter what has happened to them, the destination is clear in chapter 15. So all that's coming. What does that mean? The the Lord is for the body. You are precious, all of you. You are set apart, all of you. We'll all be renewed. That is in our future. The body is for the Lord. The Lord is for the body. So with that in mind, Two action steps that will bring this to a close this morning. Action steps that Paul addresses. The first is flee. Flee from sexual immorality. You are immersed in what the culture says and what the standard is and the moving standard that is in society, whether it's Corinth or whether it is Rosemount, Dakota County. The standard is shifting, like shifting sand all the time. So what it is that we need to be clear on, Paul addresses. And then when sexual immorality is an option for believers of any day and age, the verb is an active, ongoing sense. Flee. Flee immediately. Keep fleeing. Keep running from it. Know what it is distinctly and clearly and get out of there. What immediately comes to mind is Joseph. Potiphar's wife, end of the book of Genesis. What does he do? He runs and drops his clothes, whatever it is. He's running so fast, he loses his clothes. Run. Now, to try to set this stage, here's what comes to mind. Being ready to run, instinctively ready to run, okay? Years ago, Jackie's son, Sarah's brother, Greg, Greg and Kelly lived on the reservation. And we had a group of uh, uh, high school students and adults, Brian was there I think, we were working on the property where they lived. He had a small barn on the property. So don't think big hayloft barn, think very small. You maybe get a car in a small barn, okay? Small loft at the top. Beautiful, sunny, bright June day. And I was going to the barn for some reason. I'm by myself. I'm opening up the door. There's no windows. So bright day, and you open the door, and it's dark, right? Completely dark. So my eyes are slowly adjusting after I open the door. And I'm looking around, and as my eyes adjust to the darkness, in the darkness, something begins to become clear. There's a rafter, and it's not a big building, and I'm 6'3", so just a few inches above my head, there's a rafter. And I'm noticing there's something moving on that rafter. And as my eyes continue to adjust, I realize it is a massive snake. And he's bobbing. And he's looking at me. Now, (laughs) in that moment, I didn't need somebody to tap me on the shoulder and say, you should probably run away. As soon as that snake becomes clear, I dropped whatever was in my hands, and I ran. I almost fell on my face I ran so hard out of place because I was scared to death, okay? If you've ever been in a situation where you're not expecting something that could be lethal, bobbing in your face, you don't need someone to tell you to run, do you? You fall on yourself running, getting out of there as fast as possible, The goal, I believe, of what Paul is telling us when he says flee sexual immorality, the goal is run so hard and so fast that no one sees you but the dust left from your feet. Now, we don't with sexual immorality, and because what is tempting is so temptingly pleasurable, we don't tend to initially have that reaction. Right, I'm just telling the truth, right? The goal is to run like a snake's gonna bite your head off. We've got to move towards that goal. We make that our goal as believers to have that reaction to sin. Now, let me, let me go further with this, okay? <clears throat> That's fleeing sexual immorality. It's not good enough to just run away from sin or to have that attitude. If I could just run better, or run more, or always consistently run from sin, great, right? But we got, we've got to have a better motivation than just running from something that doesn't do it, right? Are, can you agree with me? It's never worked in my life. Uh, we've got to have something better to run to. Something that beckons to us that says, this is better than whatever else that was, okay? So that's where I'm going to go with the rest of our time here. Glorifying God in your body. Not just good enough to run from, it's what we run to. You can best flee. So this is kind of in the middle of running from and running to. We best flee. We best set a new standard and a new discipline response when we're running from and we're running to when we understand ourselves better. Now, here's a book I have. I highly recommend it. The author, Jay Stringer, has all sorts of other additional stuff and stuff online and training and counseling resources. I haven't done any of that, so I don't know firsthand you know, the, uh, the value of the depth of what he does and what his organization does. I do love this book called Unwanted, How Sexual Brokenness Reveals Our Way to Healing. In the introduction, Stringer quotes somebody else. I don't remember who it is, but the quote is this. The young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. And that's how he starts his introduction. So basically what he's saying in his book is the more that you understand the whys behind your desires and why they're there and why so many times it feels like it's impossible to break the chain that goes from desire to sin, and the temptation that keeps drawing in that direction, this book is an awesome tool to help you understand it's not just running from, but how can we understand what we're running from leads us to a better appreciation of what God has for us. There is something deeper that that quote leads us to, not just man, man, woman, and it's not just a bravel, okay? Uh, It's not just uh, the place of ill repute or whatever. It is anything, especially in regards to our context this morning, anything where you, any place where you find yourself so tempted that you want to go there. He's saying it's just, it's not just another sin, it's, it's a way of connecting with something greater, something that, uh, that transcends our, our earthbound experience and all of its limitations. There is Like I was saying earlier, there's something so intimate, so connected to us and to our hearts when it comes to our sexual uh, creation and identity that we've got to be aware of. So, uh, I've got a copy. In fact, I brought the copy this morning. If you wanna look at it a little bit more before you purchase it, but I would highly recommend reading that book, okay? Now, picture of a guy. You probably don't recognize him. It's St. Augustine. Not a whole lot of cameras around in the fourth century. Uh, maybe you're familiar a little bit about the story of St. Augustine. Uh, so He's probably the most influential writer and thinker of, wow, the first millennia. I don't, I don't know if that's an overstatement. Before he became a believer, he wrestled with uh, his desire to be important uh, for fame and identity, and he wrestled with lust. Uh, if you've ever read the book, The Confessions, or maybe you had to read that as part of Western Civ. Who was I talking about? Wow, Western Civ. It might come up. I don't know fourth century uh, uh, required reading. But anyway, uh, he said so many famous things. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you, Lord. Something like that. I I just butchered the the quote. But that's St. Augustine. He spent his young life pursuing lust, and he didn't find what it was that he was looking for. And not until, and his mother prayed for him that he'd find Christ for years. And not until later in life, did he actually find his rest in the Lord? So think about this for a moment before I give you the rest of St. Augustine. So much of our thinking kind of hits a dead end. Yeah, flee from sin, but what are we running towards? What are we replacing sin with? And so many times in our lives as Christians, well, it's gonna be something I don't like, right? Because godliness and holiness is boring, and I, you know, Sin is so tempting because that is what I like, right? I, I, I know what I like, and I want to pursue that. And that is a lie from the pit of hell, to think that we have to give up what we like to gain holiness, which really isn't all that cool or fun or wonderful, but you get it. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how many people, <clears throat> believers I've talked to, that wrestle with that. Why would I give up what I really like to gain what I don't like? Well, St. Augustine had, or at least pursued, all sorts of things he liked at the time. And then he discovered, and you can read it in his book, Confessions, how empty those things then left him. Right? So later on, becomes the influential Christian theologian, thinker of the fourth century. He's preaching on a passage in 1 John 4, I believe. And he says this, Love God, do as you please. For the soul trained in love to God will do nothing to offend the one who is beloved. That's radical. Read it again to yourself. Think about it. Love God, do as you please. Now that, maybe you've heard that before. That's been used by different people and and put in all sorts of books, whatever. Think about it. As you are released to pursue Christ, as you become more disciplined in fleeing from immorality, as you become more aware of what Christ has for you, he's not teasing you. And I've said this many times, it feels like. He's not teasing you with something that, oh, maybe this, but you don't get to do it because that's not really godly enough, or that maybe isn't really you, or, or you shouldn't do that. or I mean, we, Sometimes he had a screwy idea of, of, of spiritual life and existence of the Christ. If he's putting something in your mind, if there's something is on your heart and it's not sexually immoral, it's not leading you towards any other kind of immorality, because God doesn't tempt us into sin, for crying out loud, but if he is putting something else on your heart and it's not sin, then you get to pursue it. Does that make sense? Love God and do what you really love. Because as you're loving God, he's giving something to you that's going to be even better than anything that you've had in the past. Is that making sense? That's really what Jesus offers us. So that's the last part of what Paul says. We get to glorify God. He gives us desire to glorify God. Our lives then begin to become this never-ending, our bodies begin to become this never-ending, literally, never-ending, ending worship service to lift him up and as he puts something in your heart that you like go for it because god is glorified in that pursue him love him all the more he is leading you into that and nothing else in the past nothing else that you've toyed with can come close to touching the wonder of what he has for you so let's pray Lord Jesus, you are good, and you are great, and we are so thankful that you have a plan for all of us, including every part of us, for something greater that honors and glorifies you. As you have put things in our hearts that seem to be wonderful, and we've tasted, and there's goodness to it, Lord, confirm the desire that you put in us to pursue you, to honor you, to find new ways to glorify you with our bodies, with everything you've given. May Jesus be praised in that. In Jesus' name.